I just talked to somebody last week that works at Amazon. Okay, doesn't work at Amazon anymore. They worked at Amazon for like three days and then had to quit because apparently it's not a great place to work. Oh, did you just find this out? I mean, I kind of knew about it before, but it's a bit different to talk to somebody who actually has to experience in person the kind of things that the company does to the workers. So what did this person experience in their brief tenure at Amazon? Apparently, Amazon has a whole lot of violations that have to do with peeing. In? Well, in bottles, for one. <laughs> so they've got their, their drivers apparently don't have time to pee. So the drivers pee in bottles. The workers don't have time to pee because they've got quotas to meet. There's just a whole lot of people running around getting paid to just hold it in. That's that's the sense that I'm getting. Oh, handling my packages that I have delivered to me in two days. Well, let's assume that they're using hand sanitizer after they pee in bottles. Unless there's no time for that. Well, you know, Jeff Bezos being such a great guy, I'm sure he's supplying all of his workers with the health necessities like hand sanitizer. So we're probably safe. You know how I feel about Jeff Bezos. Apparently, besides the P, Jeff Bezos is also the root of a couple other things that this person was complaining about. The factory, and I, I suppose they're counted in the statistic, the factory and Amazon factories across the country have forced turnover because our boy Bezos has a theory that as workers stay at a place for longer, they ask for higher pay, but at the same time as their wages are going up, their motivation and productivity are going down. So he thinks that there needs to just be constant turnover, getting new employees over and over again. Seems counterintuitive to how other places run their businesses, but, you know. Well, other places aren't run by Jeff Bezos. So perhaps he's just admiring a phenomenon that he creates. Because if you work for him, perhaps it's true that over the course of two years, you tend to lose motivation <laughs> and become complacent. <laughs> right. Well, I think that you were you were telling me before the show, Nick, who we'll introduce in a bit, that... Amazon is literally running out of people to hire? Yes, uh, both in their warehouses and I believe also in the tech space. They are running out of viable candidates uh, for their own standards because they have this turnover policy and pretty much either you've already worked there or you don't want to. Yeah, they have a turnover rate of 150% a year. So what is that like a completely new workforce every like nine months? I, I don't know. Math is hard. Something like that. Generally, I think that is largely represented by people who show up their first day or their first three days, deal with whatever old Jeffy throws at them and then say, no, thank you and leave. And that's literally what happened with my friend. They were like, nope, don't want to pee in a bottle. <laughs> don't want to deal with 100 degree temperatures. Don't want to deal with one and a half minute breaks, quotas that I have to hit, etc." And they said, you know what? I'm out. Fun employment it is. In the shipping and logistics space inside of uh, warehouses and warehouse pickers specifically, that is not too uncommon to show up, work for a day, a half day, or a couple hours and leave. But it is perhaps more concerning that Amazon uh, warehouse employees tend to be injured at a higher rate uh, than, than is standard for the rest of the industry. I don't know. I don't think it's that bad the, to, to defend Amazon for a second. They did introduce these tiny little booths where overworked employees can momentarily escape this job. Oh, like a nap pod, the same way that Google has? Is it like that? It's kind of like a nap pod. Uh, one person says that what this looks like in reality is a coffin-sized booth in the middle of an Amazon warehouse where workers can use a computer 
to view mental health and mindful practices. So they've got a space to meditate about how much they have to go to the bathroom. Exposing people to even more screen time. Where will the abuses end? They should at least put a urinal. I I was thinking that. I was like, they're not going to give them a bathroom, but they're going to give them this little pod. Maybe if I meditate strongly enough, (laughs) I won't need to go to the bathroom anymore. Extra, extra, read all about it. Podcast tackles controversies that define your world. Listen to Indubitably now. Extra, extra, read all about it. That voice that you heard in the intro that you're probably less familiar with is Nick. And we brought Nick on the show, but you know, Kelly and I were talking and we're, we haven't really made our guests thus far qualify to be part of the show. I feel like this is a good time to stop that. Yeah, we generally have viewed this as like a privilege that we get a guest, but I think, you know, we've been doing this long enough that a guest should feel privileged to be here. We're very important now. Very. Well, I do feel privileged to be here. Now you have to earn it. Yeah, that's not enough. That that feeling of privilege is a prerequisite, but not necessarily getting you over the finish line here. So, Nick, the test that you have to pass is you need to answer this question correctly. Mm. If you had, for one hour, with no repercussions, Jeff Bezos at your mercy, what would you do to him? <laughs> okay, all right. I would make Jeff Bezos walk three to five of his own distribution centers with small rocks in his shoe, acutely aware of the fact that he can see his own nose and that his ears are itchy. That is sick. (laughs) You deranged man. I like it. I do what I can. I got a good answer. Hit me. I'm going to take one of these coffin-sized booths where you go to be mindful. We're going to load Jeff Bezos in that, Mm -hmm. and then we're going to load the booth into his phallic-shaped rocket good, and send him on another trip to space. Only this time, he's not coming back. Excellent. Very good. He is the world's least inspiring astronaut, so it seems appropriate. (laughs) Well, I do like that both of you have the impulse to punish him in some regard. You all know I'm no fan, and I've been very open about that. But you only have an hour and it would feel great for a few minutes, but it wouldn't really do much to create permanent change probably. So there's got to be some reasonable ways that we can deal with people like Jeff Bezos and maybe not kill him, but make things better for people who work for him. Uh, This is why Kelly's on the show to keep me in line, basically. Does sound pretty reasonable. I don't have to like it. (laughs) fair i suppose the question is then what is a reasonable way to take on one of the biggest corporations and one of the wealthiest men on the planet and the question expands past just amazon and jeff bezos because abuse is not just the thing that happens in his warehouses and for his drivers it happens in companies like starbucks it happens at companies like walmart at kroger huge corporations with massive political legal social power what are workers who oftentimes are paid minimum wage, what are they supposed to do about it? The best thing there is to do is probably do the math. There are more people who work for these corporations than there are people who run these corporations. And banding together is a way of 
being able to assert pressure in a way that you can't as individuals. All right. You're saying reasonable, but you're sounding a lot like French Revolution and off with their heads. Is that is that where you're going with this? Well, it, it kind of sounds like we're talking about collective bargaining now. Unions? Oh, <laughs> reasonable, but not fun. Look, things can be boring and also good. Fine. <laughs> Unions do seem like a reasonable, potentially more effective solution than sending billionaires to space never to return. <laughs> Why don't we start with a little bit of the theory behind what unions or collective bargaining tries to accomplish. And I think that in general, at its core, it's trying to organize workers in a way that gives them a degree of power that comes closer to that of these huge corporations. And the point of banding together is to influence certain aspects of the workspace that may not be answered for in other means, such as laws. And those things can range from anything to do with compensation, to overall treatment of workers, to safety, or a variety of other concerns that people have and otherwise cannot really advocate for as individuals. The issue here is that corporate profit versus the work experience of employees is a zero-sum game. Every dollar that goes to the employees is a dollar that's taken away from the company. So while the company has a vested interest in paying less or more work, workers have a vested interest in being able to use the bathroom, having things like decent wages, affordable health care, job security, fair scheduling, safe and respectful workplaces. And those are the things that unions, when they're doing their job correctly, are trying to secure on behalf of their members. Have you ever worked a union job at all? Uh, I've almost always worked for myself. Nick, how about you? I've never worked a union job, but I have worked in industries where I probably would have been much better off had I been in a union. I think if anything qualifies me to talk about this, it is my extensive experience working dangerous jobs. <laughs> yeah, I know a bit about that. Besides, okay, besides passing our test, Right. Nick and I have also known each other for a long time, and I know some of his work history, which I think gives him a unique perspective on this particular topic. And I'll, I'll let him kind of share what some of those jobs might be. Sure. Most recently, I work in cybersecurity, but I've also worked in robotics, in which I was exposed to a lot of people who were ununionized and probably should have been to protect their jobs. But also a lot of blue collar work prior to that. I did roofing, I did carpentry, I did electrical, been extensive. And those are jobs that you typically think of as being union jobs. You do. Like you said, and you mentioned that maybe they would you would have been better off if you were part of a union. What do you think some of the differences were between your experience and what it might have been where you unionized? Uh, the first thing that comes to mind is about $20,000 a year. Uh, the second thing... <laughs> <laughs> That's a good start. That's a good it start. is. It is a good start. Uh, journeyman who are unionized tend to make significantly more than journeymen who are not. Uh, there are some uh, restrictive rules in place, depending on the industry, that kind of govern both your personal and your work life. But at the same time, there is uh, a great deal of benefit that comes from that. You know, there are hours caps, right? There are very few times where uh, you hear about union guys who are working more than 100 hours a week. Uh, and sometimes with physical labor jobs where you have to uh, kind of coordinate with multiple uh, different contractors or, or different industries, uh, that's required. 
And so you have to get your part of the project done so that way the next person can go. And when when that timing doesn't line up uh, nicely, it can set projects back months. And that's why you see construction sites that are basically empty for sometimes months at a time. But again, I've never been in a union personally. Uh, Josh, doesn't sound like you have. Kelly, have you ever been in a union job? Yeah, twice, actually. The first time was in, when I was in high school. I worked at a grocery store, bag and groceries. Very glamorous life. Is that what the grocery store was called, or is that your job? Uh, Bagging groceries. <laughs> yeah, that'd be a good that'd be a good name for a grocery store. Yeah, uh, yeah, it was Albertsons. Oh, that's a less good name. Which to this day I I can't shop at because it just brings back too much <laughs> horrible nostalgia. Um, and I uh, was a union member there, and I was also going to school and participating in after school activities. So I only worked one day a week for a while. And that paycheck that week that I had my union dues come out was like $13 (laughs) because the union dues are something like 50 or 60 bucks a month. Um, More recently at my current employer, I was in the union until about three years ago. Um, I actually, when I was offered my promotion into an unclassified position, one of my biggest hesitations was if I leave the union is that going to put me into a compromising situation in which I might have less job security? So far, so good. As I listen to you talk about this, I, I kind of remember uh, one of the final jobs that I ever did when I was roofing and the exact reason why I left. It was 136 outside and we were working on a roof that was multi-level and it was a torch down roof. So after we finished moving uh, 30 tons of rock and slag, we then had a blowtorch in our hand that was 3,000 degrees, and the heat was running up a wall and then coming back towards us. And so we were basically just in the, the worst oven, sear, broil setting that you can imagine. And I feel like a union actually wouldn't have allowed those working conditions. We, we did, for those of you who might not have listened already, just do an episode about the existence of God and ask the question, is God altruistic? And I think we just got our answer. <laughs> All right. So we have we have unions providing decent wages, health care, job security uh, for the mass of workers out there. We have unions potentially protecting people uh, from having to pee in bottles and melting their own faces off. Seems good. <laughs> it seems that unions are a pretty positive thing. Well, but there's also there's a few problems with unions as well. So when I try to transition uh, from roofing into uh, being an electrician, because I already had some experience with solar, uh, and I figured that was a a good segue, I found that it was almost impossible to enroll in any of the classes that it is mandatory to be involved in prior to getting a job as an apprentice electrician. And that was because the union would not accept my application, or they had an extremely long wait list, depending on uh, which office I was applying to. It sounds like what you're describing is a situation where unions are able to protect the people within them, but potentially those protections and those benefits cause a ripple effect, not just for companies or industries externally, but also workers externally. Right? So maybe it's not all good here. That's absolutely right. And I think one of the factors that stood out most to me was that when I was researching why to become an electrician, because there was a massive nationwide shortage of journeymen and artisan electricians available. And it's questionable on whether or not the union has 
made this job so appealing that lots of people are trying to apply and that's why they're overloaded and can't accept new applicants or if they've limited the supply of electricians so greatly that now we aren't able to keep up with demand. It seems like that is contrary to a lot of the stated goals of the initial push for unions, which was to do the best for all workers, regardless of industry. The narrative around unions is that they exist to protect blue-collar workers from the bourgeoisie, which we'll get to later in the episode. But from what we're saying, it definitely seems as that might be a bit of a facade, and this isn't a coming together of the working class to ensure rights and well-being and a standard of living for everybody, but rather a group of people protecting their own interests at the expense of everybody around them, whether the people around them be corporate owners, politicians, or fellow working class, middle class individuals. That might depend on the union and the industry, but I think generally you are correct in that the union has a vested interest in taking care of the specific union members in the same way that uh, perhaps a government only has a vested interest in taking care of its immediate populace. Which isn't necessarily unfair. I'm definitely not saying that people shouldn't be looking out for themselves, but to do that in a sort of short-sighted way that also throws under the bus, if you will, people that are in a similar situation to themselves seems a bit hypocritical. Yeah, the protections for the union members of today at the expense of the potential union members of tomorrow and the viability of the industry as a whole does seem a little self-sabotage-y. And this is along with criticisms of unions that are fairly standard of just degrees of bureaucracy that exist. Kelly talks about her $13 paycheck, taking money from the workers to supposedly represent them. Oftentimes when they didn't choose to be represented, people who work in a union environment that don't necessarily agree with unionization would rather keep their own money, but are pressured into joining that union and therefore paying the dues. Yeah, both the times I was in a union, it was expected, mandatory. You remember regardless of whether or not you wanted to be and you paid the dues, whether or not you wanted to or could even potentially benefit from it. So when I was 16, that kind of sucked. When I was you know, making actual money, it was a little less impactful overall. But still, that can be a pretty big imposition upon people who are already struggling. We know that the middle class right now, due to inflation and other factors, have very um, diminishing spending power. Union dues don't help that. It does seem like a classic case of punching down on the little guy. Like if you are somebody at a grocery store who has a small paycheck and you have a large union due, that seems untenable in a lot of ways. But if you are in a different industry where your union has earned you an additional thirty or $40,000 a year for doing the same work as compared to people who are ununionized, uh, then it's a very different question. Well, and even within the same union, there's hierarchies that exist. A lot of unions, I'm thinking of teachers in this case, establish systems of tenure. Uh, in Nick's example of electricians, it sounds like the same thing happens. And I, I think that this could go either way. I know in general right now we're talking about the shortcomings of unions, but I could see this as rewarding people who've been around for a while, but at the same time, guaranteeing people who have simply been in a workplace for X amount of years, an elevated status over other individuals doesn't seem to motivate them much to innovate, to grow, to stay dedicated, any of the things that we would expect out of a worker or hope to get out of a worker. 
Yeah, Jeff Bezos is right in that we demand more money and get progressively more lazy, then unions are the ideal environment for fostering that, I suppose, which like, I'm okay with that because it takes away from corporate profits when that happens. But in the public sector, it's probably not a good thing because then like teacher quality declines and we kind of need good teachers. Teachers bring up an interesting conversation about other public sector unions. Most of what we've talked about so far have been private sector workers that were employed by corporations, but there's huge unions for first responders, police, firefighters, paramedics, nurses, and the like. And I think the difference here is worth noting where normally if your boss is a corporation, in these cases, your boss is the public. So in this case, we talked about things being a zero-sum game before between the ownership of a company and the workers. Here, anything you as a worker gain theoretically comes at the expense of the taxpayers. And there's plenty of examples where city and state budgets are weighed down by the wages and benefits of their public service workers, where sometimes they're being paid much more than their private sector counterparts. We can probably all agree that we don't like money getting wasted, but generally these are undervalued, underappreciated jobs in a lot of cases. So if we're identifying areas where the government could spend its money better, that's not my first target. I I agree that these are people that need to be valued. Teachers, of course, we're not going to sit here on a podcast and say we shouldn't value nurses or teachers. But at the same time, there has to be a reasonable balance. I think it's important to note the political clout that public service unions have and what they're able to leverage that clout into. Increasingly high wages, increasingly high benefits, with oftentimes seemingly no concern for what a municipal budget looks like and whether or not that's something that it can handle. My question, as it pertains to wages, has always been not whether or not it's profitable, not whether or not it's possible, but where the wages are going. So in the cases of nurses, I completely understand their ire insofar as hospital administrators somehow are making vast sums of money more than they are, and yet they do none of the life-saving. And the nurses have to endure the vast majority of the suffering, even as compared to doctors and surgeons. And this kind of plays out in the other fields as well, like teachers versus school administrators, similar situation. But let's go back to that teacher example. And when we were talking about tenure, does a teacher who has received tenure, has their place established by a union, has been in the classroom for 30 years, and now honestly just doesn't care anymore under the Bezos theory of motivation, but still is being paid at a rate as though they are one of the top teachers that we have in our system, is it fair to our kids? Is it fair to our educational system for that much money to be going to somebody that is not putting that much effort into the system? And obviously this doesn't apply to everybody, but if it does apply to a person, that person is protected by unions. Some might argue that's an acceptable cost, that there may be people who take advantage of some of the protections afforded by unions. If overall that keeps people well compensated and protected from like capricious firings, overall that might be a yeah, there's one teacher who just kind of sucks. They bring out the video screen every day and say, We're watching Dr. Zhivago. I'm gonna take a nap. Oh, oh that was my favorite teacher. <laughs> that's not surprising. As much as 
Kelly, you can point to an example of a teacher being protected from capricious firing. There's a lot of cases that have been relatively prominent in the news lately of the opposite, particularly uh, with police officers and the police union protecting officers who have committed actions that quite self-evidently they should be held responsible for, but are not because of the protection of unions. Sometimes the union itself might have inherent problems, and it might not just be a few individuals who are in the unions who are the ones that are the problem. So as we started our conversation about the benefits of unions being the ability for workers to collectively bargain, to group together and give them the ability to stand up against corporations that have much more legal power, financial power, and political power than they do. In this instance, when we're talking about unions that cater to public service workers, these unions have political clout that actually outweighs that that the rest of the population that we have. Any politician running for office basically needs to get union support to win, especially at a citywide or statewide level. You need the support of the police union. You need the support of the fire union. You need the nurses support, et cetera, teachers support, et cetera. And so in these instances, I think that public sector unions are able to secure potentially too many benefits from time to time or protect individuals that maybe we'd be better off if we were able to hold them responsible for certain actions rather than guaranteeing them their jobs. This is where we get into the very interesting stuff with unions, not just that they have the influence over their industry or the politics that surround them, but how they exert their power when they're not getting their way. There are multiple different methods, but let's focus on strikes, slowdowns, and sabotage. Oh, my. Sabotage. Oh, my. <laughs> sabotage is definitely the fun one. I think we'll get to that later. Let's start with strikes. Also, uh, alongside strikes, they picket, they boycott. Strikes are often a visible way for the members of a particular labor force to indicate their displeasure and to visibly, noticeably counter whatever the dominant narrative is from the industry in which they are usually employed, but now striking. Strikes typically make the news and they essentially just mean that the employees are going to not work, not collect wages or anything until their demands are met. In addition to striking, there typically is picketing, which is another way to make the strike more visibly known. You'll see people in the union leading chants and holding signs, issuing demands publicly, which draws a lot of attention, and boycotting the industries themselves, asking people within the community to stop purchasing things from that particular producer or what have you. This happened in the Pacific Northwest a couple of years ago when there was a, I believe, a vote to unionize a Fred Meyer locally. And because of the pressure from management, members of the community decided not to buy from them while they were in this dispute. This is a pretty effective way to collectively, quote, bargain. It's a great example of the workers realizing what, Kelly, you kind of started this episode with, which was there's a whole lot more of us than there are of you, and kind of you rely on us. And these are ways to exert that power in a bit more forceful manner than a negotiation or an election or even a court proceeding. And it's important to note that strikes, as they're used currently, 
tend to happen if there has been some sort of a breakdown in negotiation. That is not usually the first line of asserting a union's power. Strikes an interesting decision because it's literally an example of workers deciding that they're willing to sacrifice their own wages and their own income for some bigger than themselves or longer term goal. And when it's a workers in a company pitting their financial interests against the interests of that company, that's one thing. But again, I think it's important that we talk about public sector workers, because when teachers strike or garbage workers strike or first responders strike, it's not a company that suffers, but it's all of us that suffer. And in this case, suffering doesn't mean losing some money. In this case, suffering could mean losing your life. Do you guys think that it's legitimate for nurses, for example, to be able to strike if they feel as though their wages or work conditions are unfair? How else would they be guaranteed to get paid adequately if there is a lack of will politically to pay them as much as they deserve and they need to be compensated fairly for the work that they do without a reasonable threat of a strike? They don't have any power. I feel like I have to bring up, though, and this is unpopular opinion, but I think there's some weight behind it, is we talked earlier about the kind of political clout that public sector unions have. A politician who's running for office and doesn't have the support of a nurses union has a much worse chance of winning. In general, I think everybody supports nurses. If there's a measure on the ballot that suggests we should pay nurses fairly or improve work standards, it usually passes. So with all of those benefits and all that public support that already exists, if they get told no, to something that they want, and now they're at the point where they have to strike, do you think maybe they're just asking for too much? Nurses probably have a better idea of what they're owed than the public do. And a lot of work, I'm going to make this about gender for a second, a lot of work that is heavily perceived to be performed by women, nursing, teaching, some other industries as well, tends to be categorically undervalued by people. It tends to not be as popular to pay those folks as much as they could make if they're putting pressure on the industry. That's something we actually talked about in our traditional gender roles episode, looking at Scandinavian countries that have, compared to the rest of the world, relatively equitable societies. But even in those countries, we noted that nurses in specific were getting paid disproportionately low compared to more male dominated industries. So I want to start by saying that in my mind, there is, and and this is coming from someone who has been hospitalized, (laughs) suffice to say, more than once. That's what happens when you put a blowtorch to your face. Look, man, that's a great point. (laughs) Uh, But but there really isn't a way to quantify how much a nurse should be paid. These are people who deal with not just physical labor, not just long hours, not just uh, technically complex labor in a way that it it directly affects the health of the patient, but it's also a great deal of emotional labor, right? Their job has so much intersectionality with all the different categories of what makes jobs difficult on a day-to-day basis. In my mind, as long as there are profits in a hospital, you cannot pay them enough. But at the same time, should they be allowed to strike? Well, that that is deeply questionable because I have been the guy sitting in the waiting room 
with a laceration to the forearm that without uh, 11 and a half sutures uh, would have become a super soaker relatively quickly. So it is it is deeply questionable to me whether or not nurses should be allowed to strike. But I can't imagine anybody with a straight face sitting there and thinking they don't deserve more. It's the threat of a, a realistic threat of a strike that is the only thing that gives them any power. So the eventuality that there would be patients who are left untreated should be enough of a consideration for management to give in to what they're asking for. And sometimes they don't, and that kind of forces their hand to make make it known that they're serious about their their demands. And the only way to do it, and I know nurses, and I know that they don't want to abandon their patients, but they also don't want to be exploited. So the balance is that they have to strike sometimes to make it all come together. And as much as right now we're talking about the public sector and the impacts that those strikes can have to bring this conversation full circle back to corporations, I think that they understand also the power and the damage that strikes can do. So as much as workers might put their efforts into forming unions and ensuring that they have these sorts of protections and they have the abilities that collective bargaining affords them, corporations are doing the opposite. And they're putting their efforts into union busting and ensuring that unions aren't able to form and aren't able to succeed. And we have this epic battle between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie to see who will succeed. Will the union form or will the union not form? This is certainly a much easier conversation when we take it out of the public sector, right? If your job is not to prevent my house from burning down, you know, go ahead and strike all you want. So we've talked a bit about the tactics that unions have to take it to the corporation or to take it to the public. What about some of the tactics that corporations have to stop unions from forming in the first place or to stop already formed unions from being able to achieve their goals or the demands that they might have of that corporation? We're starting to see increasing retaliation against people who are trying to organize for labor. Right now, what's happening for a lot of people in Starbucks who are trying to organize is that they will find who these organizers are and look for any potential infraction in order to fire them or otherwise penalize them. In one instance, a an organizer showed up for work two minutes late and she was terminated. When that is usually an acceptable margin considering, you know, you open the store at like five in the morning. It's okay if it's at 5.02, right? So there is definitely a seek and destroy tactic being employed by a lot of management to get union organizers out, which will also in turn disincentivize other people from becoming union organizers, especially if they really need those jobs. And it's also important to note just procedurally how a union comes about. 30% of people in any particular workplace need to vote to have a union vote. They need to get 30% of workers on a petition in order for this vote to happen. And so places, again, like Amazon, we bring up the turnover rate. If the workforce is constantly changing and people are phasing out, new people are being phased in, it's very difficult to get this critical mass of the 30% people needed in order for the vote to even happen in the first place. We speak about political clout that unions have, but I think if there was anything that a union could do to further the agenda of all unions, it would perhaps be to get more uh, stringent or harsher punishments enforced from a governmental level on corporations who 
who engage in this kind of union busting tactics. Because as of, at least as I understand it right now, if a company is found guilty of union busting, the only side effect or the only punishment that will be dealed out to them is that they will have to allow for a secondary vote. And as I understand it, the company wins a secondary vote almost every single time. I think it's like 95 or 96%. Right. Everything we've listed is theoretically illegal for corporations to do. But one, it's really hard to prove. Like maybe that worker that Kelly brings up shouldn't have been late. If you're really looking for a reason to fire somebody, (laughs) I'm sure that you can find it. And for that worker to say, hey, it's because I was organizing the formation of a union. It's not because I was late to work. How do you prove that in court? How do you prove the motivation of the company? So A, it's hard to prove that they broke the law. And B, if you are able to prove that they broke the law, the punishments are laughable. Furthermore, corporations in particular have resources that prospective union members just don't have. If there are any challenges that are brought forth about the ability to organize, if that goes to any sort of court proceeding, who has very deep pockets to stay in this bureaucratic judicial morass and overload the opposition with files for like 10 years? That's the corporation obviously has all of the power in that scenario. And they're willing to use it. They're willing to spend that much money, that much time to just ensure that this disease doesn't infect their workforce. It's actually kind of laughable considering how much money a corporation will spend to prevent a union from forming that probably would have just satisfied the demands of workers <laughs> had they unionized. But the union itself is so scary to have that it's worth defeating, which kind of proves the effectiveness of unions. If a corporation is so invested in making sure they don't form at its own expense and probably to its detriment in some cases, There clearly is a sort of power that they genuinely fear in these situations. We talk about all these union busting tactics, and we talk about how uh, there are very few unions in general as far as industries that we can think of off the top of our head. So how often are unions actually successful in forming? Well, the answer is a lot less successful than they used to be. Currently, only around 10% of workers in the U.S. workforce belong in unions. And that's down from a peak, to give some context, of 34.8% in 1954. And while membership is pretty low, 71% of Americans support unionization currently, which is a 57-year high. And there are probably some conditions that speak to that. It seems pretty obvious that there are still a lot of industries that lack a lot of protections from the industries themselves, the leadership within those industries, but also the government. And after seeing how everything worked out in the pandemic and how labor has been treated over the last two to three years, it's obvious that there needs to be some sort of intervention. And if the government isn't going to do it and the industry has no motivation itself to treat people well, then it makes sense to consider the unions as a way of exerting more pressure And perhaps union membership is going to increase in the future because of the sentiment changing quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, that's a very optimistic way of looking at it. I read this and it makes me think glass half empty just because with this much support and yet no results, it almost seems hopeless. 
Uh, I say almost because Amazon, who we've been kind of portraying as the big bad wolf throughout the episode, just came through with their first union vote. In April, a couple months ago, 2,600 workers at a Staten Island New York warehouse called the JFK 8 voted to join Amazon's first U.S. union, which sounds great, but only the first step because a week after the union won this election, Amazon filed 25 objections with the National Labor Relations Board, including charges that union leaders bribed workers with marijuana and harassed those who didn't support the union. So basically, they are accusing union leaders of doing exactly what corporations do to stop unions from forming. What corporations bribe you with marijuana? I would like to work there. (laughs) I was more focusing on the harassment (laughs) part. Fair. Well, I don't want to brag too much about my qualifications to talk on this subject, but uh, I have also peed in the bottle before. And so uh, I can say that perhaps the overwhelming support from the last 57 years uh, comes from the fact that this is actually commonplace in a lot of positions now, right? If you work in construction or in a lot of blue-collar positions, you kind of expect to be in a place where you don't have adequate working conditions and you do have long hours and you might be stuck in a warehouse or in some other location that doesn't have a good bathroom or maybe in a truck where you're stuck in traffic all the time. Uh, I think as more and more people experience these hardships, support for unions is naturally going to skyrocket as people believe that adequate working conditions, even if it is something as simple as the ability to pee not in a bottle, (laughs) uh, this all just makes sense to me. Well, I guess we are in a wait and see period here on whether or not this incredibly high level of support. I mean, 71% of Americans, it's hard to get 71% of Americans to agree on anything, True, uh, especially something as politicized as this. Uh, But I guess we'll have to wait and see if that degree of support will translate into the 10% of workers who are currently in unions raising up again and and maybe getting closer to that peak of, of 35%. There's still some recourse from corporations, even if unions do form successfully. They can refuse to replace people who leave and keep the workforce small. They can then convert a lot of things into temporary positions or otherwise non-represented positions. And our favorite topic ever, I'm kidding because I hate them, robots. There's a lot more automation that's happening in a lot of these industries, and I'm scared. That is a very reasonable fear. (laughs) Oh, good. So even if a workforce is able to unionize, uh, they're still screwed. Yeah, that is an accurate, possibly accurate depiction of matters. Uh, Unfortunately, I do have some experience in the robotics industry. And even more unfortunately, the robotics that I was assisting in deploying were primarily used in warehouses and distribution centers, uh, mostly in America, but also internationally. And the simple truth is, if these types of people were to unionize, it would perhaps be the best sales pitch that my previous employer had ever had. The problems that they were seeking to solve were endemic to that level of labor in that industry. And so in order for them to be sold that somehow robots were better than humans, really all we had to show was that they were mostly dependable and cheaper. And I think If you take certain 
industries, uh, whether it be warehouse uh, pickers or whether it be in some ways, even restaurant workers, it is very possible to automate those positions and simply turn them into single purchase or even subscription-based technological programs or, or replace them entirely with machines. We have been expressing concerns about the future of the workforce holistically when it comes to automation and how people are going to even be able to afford to live if increasingly work is done by people you don't have to pay, robots, robots you don't have to pay. We talked about this in our AI episode to some degree, but especially in our universal basic income episode where we discussed what it would mean if everything was in the realm of robotics to take care of, how would we feed ourselves? And I think that that's a really good discussion to learn more about what happens potentially as a result of unionization of industries right now, which are gaining these capabilities. All right. So here's the thing. Nick and I start this episode talking about violence Violence. and repercussions for the top 2%, the bourgeoisie. And then Kelly reigns on our parade, says, let's be reasonable. And we have this conversation about unions. At the end of the conversation about unions, I'm not feeling super optimistic about the chances that they're going to actually change the situation for the worker. So I don't know about y'all, but I'm ready to ditch the reasonable ways of going about changing what our capitalist system looks like and go for full-blown Marxist revolution. I'll be honest, Josh, I wasn't being reasonable. I was just playing someone reasonable on TV. You know how I really feel about these things. You know that I'm all for just burning the system down sometimes. All right, now we're talking. So let us indoctrinate our listeners who might be less familiar with Marx and some of his theories. And when I say Marxist revolution, what do I mean? Marx believed that revolution was both fundamentally essential and inevitable to the progress of human society. He anticipated that eventually the workers of the world would realize that they have nothing to lose but their chains and revolt against the industrialists and capitalists who covertly controlled their lives. And I don't know about you guys, but the conversation that we're having is making me a little bit of a convert here. Well, this was a theory defined close to two centuries ago now. So how applicable is it to our current situation when it comes to laborers? Like what was Marx specifically advocating? Well, I think it's absolutely applicable. And the reason is when it was written, he wasn't necessarily saying revolt now, but in what I just read, he's saying it would be inevitable to the progress of human society. And I think that we're coming pretty close to that inevitability. Uh, A couple of reasons for that. One, in the definition I gave, he talks about industrialists and capitalists who covertly controlled their lives. And when we discuss the kind of legal, social, political influence that capitalists and corporations have, I think that they put up this facade that they're doing things legally, that the system is fair for everybody, there's the American dream. But I think that is just a system that helps them maintain covert control, which manifests itself in the types of abuses that we're talking about, which are getting more and more extreme. We could probably point to our episode discussing legal cases like Citizens United 
as evidence of how there is so much more corporate influence in the way that government operates than there might be otherwise. So I guess I, I take that point. I I see that there is a lot of puppet mastering that is happening at the hands of capitalists. So that's half of it. The other half is Marx had 10 planks in his theory, things that he thinks should be implemented in a society. I'm going to read a couple of them that I think are interesting. And I want you to sort of keep in mind the kind of demands that we've been discussing on behalf of workers while I go through this list. One is a heavy progressive or graduated income tax. Two is extensions of factories and instruments of production owned by the state. Three is equal liability of all to labor, establishment of industrial armies, especially for agriculture. And last is free education for all children in public schools and combination of education with industrial production. So in my mind, a lot of these things he's asking for, progressive or graduated income tax, is rebalancing out wages between CEOs, elites within corporations, and the average workers. Extension of factories and instruments of production owned by the state is taking the hordes of wealth that certain individuals have in our society and putting them back into the hands of the general public. Free education, ensuring that people have the tools necessary to get jobs where they might have the type of clout to protect their own wages or benefits. All of these things seem currently applicable to me. I will say there is a bit of friction in the idea of having this owned by the state. Because if it is difficult for a worker as an individual to negotiate with a corporation, I cannot imagine, I cannot even fathom how much more difficult it would be to then try to bargain with a government. Uh, it seems to me like it would make the problem mind-boggling worse. Unlike a corporation, though, you actually can exert more influence over a government. and. Perhaps that is a way that collective action can work when it comes to addressing industry that might be owned by the government. We can vote people out. And I know Josh is going to say the way that we vote right now is very, very compromised, and it is. Mm -hmm. But I can more successfully vote for representation in government than I can vote for the CEO of a corporation. I think that when I said we're done with being reasonable. Maybe you guys underestimated what I meant by that <laughs> because you're talking about exerting influence and negotiating and voting. Marx suggested that this is so important that this revolution had to take place by any means necessary, including violent revolution. Violence. I did get the mental image of pitchforks when he was talking about like an agricultural army. French Revolution, beheadings, launching billionaires into space in their own rocket ships. This is what I'm talking about. Now you're talking. Now I'm listening. <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't think there's a lot of political will for that sort of extreme means of gaining control of production and what have you, even though we all seem to be pretty big fans of it here. Don't ruin my dreams, Kelly. There are still things that we can do that kind of work more in the realm of what is reasonable, but are still a lot more fun to talk about than just like a picket line. <laughs> I'm willing to hear a compromise here. What if the compromise is you can still be violent? I'm, I'm listening. So one of the three S's we talked about was sabotage. 
And there is some nuance to the discussion of sabotage itself. The origin of the word has some dispute. One interpretation of it is that in the early 1800s, when mercantilism and what have you was starting to pick up with the Industrial Revolution, that when workers were dissatisfied, they would bring in people who were largely untrained to perform the work, and they were called sabos, and they just worked kind of slowly. So part of sabotage could just be impeding industry by doing a work slowdown or stopping altogether. I'm waiting for violence, Kelly. Okay, hang on. The other potential origin of the word is that sabo may be a wooden shoe which was then thrown into the actual gears of machinery to not just interrupt work, but actually actively break the process down to the point that it it shut down work through a much more extreme means. And from that, sabotage has become synonymous with using either property damage, which is not the same thing as violence, or actual violence itself, like actually killing people in order for unions to exert their influence over industry. So are there recent or any examples in the last hundred years or so of of this type of thing working? Because I'm in, I'm sold, but I just, I I have my doubts. Working might be hard to discern because other union activities still exist even when violence does. Typically, the most prevalent use of violence is to prevent replacement workers who would go in when there is a strike. Uh, I think I would be afraid to go and pick up production if my life was threatened. So that seems pretty effective. There are two unions that were operating in the late 19th and early 20th century, which were known for bombing things and killing people. Uh, The International Association of Bridge, Structural, Ornamental, and Reinforcing Iron Workers. Say that 10 times fast, please. No, don't. They, They bombed the Los Angeles Times building in 1910, killing 21 people. Western Federation of Miners had a series of violent events happening in the late 19th and early 20th century. And in one particular instance in 1894 at Cripple Creek in Colorado, that's a problematic name I'll just call out. After mine owners increased the working day from eight hours to 10, miners dynamited mine buildings and equipment. And violence was a frequent tactic from then on and definitely resulted in deaths of people as well. And did either of these organizations get what they were hoping to get out of these activities? Please say yes. Well, it's sort of a mixed bag. With the Los Angeles Times bombing, that was actually viewed as domestic terrorism and people went to jail over it. So it sounds like that one was pretty unsuccessful. But the Western Federation of Miners during this strike and subsequent use of violence during the striking process ultimately got the mine owners to capitulate and broker an agreement that favored the miners. And then they just kept doing more violence. It sounded like they got a taste for it. Well, that's less than ideal. I guess it depends on if you're going to be the target of the violence or getting your way because of the violence. Fair enough. I guess it worked out well for the miners. See, I think that the end of this episode is that the only thing that's effective is complete Marxist revolution. Is that your adjudication on the topic of unions altogether then? Uh, are you are you making me give legitimate thoughts on this episode? Yeah, that's what we do here. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Adjudication, as much as the violence is fun, let's start with some 
presuppositions about the worth of individual contributions to our economy and society and subsequent compensation. I do think that some people contribute more and some much more than others and should be compensated for that. But I don't think there's an example anywhere on the planet of someone who is working a full-time job being 1.7 million times less valuable than Jeff Bezos. And that is how much more he makes than the average American, average American. So not even individuals living closer to the poverty line, making minimum wage. There most certainly has to be a reasonable cap to the disparities in compensation that exist. I also don't think that our current economic, social, legal, or political infrastructures can be trusted to either define or defend that cap. In fact, I think just the opposite. They operate and sometimes exist with the sole purpose of exploiting it. I think that Marx got right the idea that industrialists and capitalists will covertly control our lives. So definitely something needs to be done. What should it be? Probably unions. I know that's the boring answer, but it's probably the correct one. Collective bargaining gives more equivalent power to workers and the ability to leverage that power against the corporations or sometimes us, the public, that are holding from them fair wages, fair benefits, fair working conditions. It's a bit disheartening to think that unions are as ineffective or uncommon as they are especially given the amount of support they have. Will that change given record high levels of support? Hopefully. If it doesn't, though, I'm still holding strong on the revolution train. I'm hoping that that's the route we end up going. Nick, you were my teammate on this uh, violent revolution sabotage still line of reasoning. Are you still with me here? Or Absolutely. Are we, are we, have we been made reasonable by Kelly? Nope. You can try as you may, but I will never be reasonable. No, but jokes aside, I think I'm more in the realm of uh, unions. I'm pro union in general, but I do think it depends very heavily on the industry and, and also the timeline that we were talking about. But insofar as workers need protecting and insofar as the government has a very distant interest, if not uh, no interest in, in doing so. I think that unions are the best solved for this, as far as we can see. With all that said, my qualifier is if you are in an industry where your job could be easily automated, uh, please uh, proceed with caution. So maybe violence against robots is the answer. Oh, certainly. That's the answer. 100%, especially before they become sentient. All right, Kelly, you've been the voice of reason throughout the episode. Let's hear your final thoughts on this. Unions are important for a lot of the things that really ought to be taken care of by government, but clearly aren't or won't be. I see unions as I see a lot of other ways that people band together to take care of themselves when they've been largely disregarded by other systems. This brings to mind systems like mutual aid, which we see as being pretty effective for dealing with like local social injustices and getting people like housing and medical aid and things along those lines. And unions are kind of like that too. It's taking care of your community. The effects that unions are capable of garnering for their members are only available if all means are available to unions in order to exert power over industry. 
And yeah, I'm going to be reasonable. And I'm going to say that violence is sometimes reasonable. I have a utilitarian mindset about this. And when it comes to challenging capitalist systems and captains of industry who make so much more money than anybody else ever could, I'm okay if you like blow up their yacht. That's totally fine, ethically, morally, reasonably, in my opinion. I do see that the most common exercise of unions is going to be something like negotiations leading to a strike and in some cases. And if it means that a critical worker is not providing patient care for a day or two, if that's what it takes to get people to believe that they are not valued highly enough by their employer, then I think that's worth it as well. All right. As usual, I think Kelly has the most reasonable take from the episode. Despite that, Nick, we do appreciate you coming on and sharing your thoughts, even if they are slightly less reasonable than Kelly's. Happy to be the most unreasonable person in the house. Thank you so much. (laughs) If any of our listeners would like to share their thoughts on poor work conditions, uh, how they might like to treat their bosses, what they might like to do if they had Jeff Bezos for an hour with no consequences, you can let us know any of those things at our socials. We are on both Twitter and Facebook at IndubitablyPod or can be reached through email at indubitablypodcast at gmail.com. I, for one, can't wait to see what our listeners come up with for how they would treat Jeff Bezos if given a little bit of access to him. I think if we had a few people submit different ideas, it'd be cool to see which one is the most creative. Maybe somebody who's got a really outstanding idea could suggest an episode topic for us sometime. Ooh, contest time. This sounds great. I think I'm even going to comment on your social media now. Can I change my original answer? I think what I want is something that involves an entire warehouse of bubble wrap, three to six raccoons, and perhaps two to 500 feet of rope. I'm not sure how this all fits together yet, but I, I give me some time here. Do you still have that blowtorch? Oh, of course. <laughs> I'm curious what you're going to do with the bubble wrap. It sounds like it might be a little too safe.